Recently, I was uh, listening to a podcast episode, episode called New Realities for Teenagers, and it's with a guy who's led student ministries for uh, really about 40 years, and he's been a pastor and involved in helping lead other student pastors. Um, and he's sort of an expert on teenagers and just sort of the culture around teenagers, and he really stays connected into that and sort of helping them through that culture uh, with their faith journey. And the episode that I listened to sort of highlighted a, a newer reality. It's not necessarily completely new, but a newer reality that's been shaping teenagers specifically um, really because uh, it's all that they've known. It's, it's sort of the, the culture that they've grown up in. And this reality is that everything is disposable. I don't know if you've thought about this recently, but that's basically the, the culture that we live in right now. Everything is disposable, whether it's our phones or water bottles or clothing, uh, devices. It's just so much easier to dispose of them than sometimes to, to deal with whatever the problem might be. Where previous generations um, would sort of try to fix it, uh, you know, repair it, or at the very least we would duct tape it, right? We would try to do something to, to, to resurrect it or to bring it back. We've just sort of mass-produced things in such a way that it's just sometimes cheaper and better. And I put air quotes because it's not always better, but it seems better sometimes to just buy a brand new one. Uh, and many times it is cheaper than actually sort of trying to fix something because the parts or whatever the case might be are more expensive. And sometimes it's just, again, cheaper and better to, to dispose of the old, the broken, the used thing that's not working for us anymore and get something new. Now, I want to be very clear. I, I don't think this is teenagers' fault. I think this is just sort of the culture that they've grown up in. And, and those of us who are older than teenagers right now, in some ways, we've sort of set the stage for this. And we've created this culture where everything seems disposable. Now, obviously, we're all contributing to it. But again, this isn't meant as a knock on teenagers specifically. It's just sort of the acknowledgement that in the world that we live in, it sort of seems that everything can be disposable in one way or another, and it's impacting teenagers. Now, well, obviously, um, uh, this is not necessarily good for the environment, right? Disposing of everything is not good for the environment. Uh, it also has other consequences, right? This idea of everything is disposable, it has other consequences in other areas of our lives. And eventually, this disposable sort of mindset, it creeps into other areas of our lives. It creeps, it creeps into our relationships, that anytime this relationship isn't serving me or helping me or good for me anymore, I can just dispose of it. I can just dispose of that relationship. And we almost turn, and we do, we turn in people to objects rather than people. And we see them as just something that we can dispose of. And unfortunately, this mindset of everything is disposable also creeps into our spirituality, our, our faith. It creeps into how we view God. And it's just sort of a natural leap that jumping in of saying, well, if my faith isn't working for me right now, uh, I'm just going to dispose of it and move on from it. And then it's not even a, much of a bigger leap, I think, for teenagers specifically, but maybe some of us as well, to make the leap of saying, and if I can just dispose of my faith, if I can just dispose of everything else like that, maybe I'm disposable to God as well. And so it can lead to a really slippery slope, and, and, and I would suggest a very dangerous slope, as well. And, and in those moments where our integrity is on the line, we've been talking about integrity, where, where our reactions are, are needing to be appropriate, but in those moments where our integrity is on the line, where um, our career aspirations are on the line, we might uh, you know, want to get the date or seal the deal or, or finish the transaction, whatever it is, but it's going to require that we have to give up something or we have to sacrifice something, do something that we know we shouldn't do. In those moments where our faith just isn't working for us anymore, it doesn't seem like it's helping us, it's not necessarily benefiting us, or that it'll actually cost us something to continue following in our faith. In the moments when our faith requires us to react differently to other people than what other people might react to us, 
or we would want to react to other people, in those moments we discover whether our integrity is disposable. In those moments we discover whether our faith is disposable. And my faith is, it was sort of was working for me, but again, in this moment, it doesn't seem like it's working. And I, I maintained it through some things. I maintained it when things were going okay. But now things are difficult. Now things are sort of like, you know, I don't really like where my faith's taking me. And it seems to be costing me something. So I'm just going to sort of dispose of it and just keep on going. And in those moments, we discover how much confidence we actually have in God or how much we don't have confidence in God. More on that in a moment. Uh, like I said, we're continuing the series called uh, Ducks in a Row. Um, I almost slipped up because my kids keep wanting me to call it duckies in a row. <laughs> and I, instead of accidentally saying it, I'll just say it out loud. Duckies in a row, ducks in a row. We're talking about getting our priorities right. That in seasons where things are changing and, and new things are happening, going back to the office, what, whatever the thing might be, our priorities are incredibly important. They help set the direction for that next season. And so we're talking about priorities, whether you're in a new season starting school or whatever, or maybe you're just sort of in the normal, regular season and nothing's really changing. Either way, our priorities are incredibly important. By definition, they're priorities, right? They're important. And so we're talking about how to have uh, how to set these priorities and get them straight. And their priorities that we're talking about today, I think in some ways have a disproportionate impact on us, but they also have a disproportionate impact on those around us. And so in week one, we talked about our reactions. Our reactions are very, very important. And we looked at Jesus' most famous, and maybe it's his most well-known, maybe most preached sermon also, as we're going to talk about today. Um, but Jesus addressed how important our reactions are. That our reactions when people wrong us and do something wrong to us. Our reactions when people try to instigate problems and our reactions to enemies. He talked about those things. Our reactions in those situations are very important. And how Jesus said we should react should really sort of cause people to sort of pause. And maybe in you know, sort of the bad case of the overreaction, we cause people to stop and stare, but maybe even the good reactions of, of actually reacting how Jesus would want us to react, it sort of causes people to, to, to be pausing and looking at you saying, well, you should be angry about this, but you don't seem to be very angry. You should be bitter, but it doesn't seem like you're bitter. And I'm the one who did something bad to you. You should be bitter towards me. But people notice your reaction is not that way. And they might lead them to ask, like, well, what's up with that? Like, what's going on with you? Like, how are you actually reacting that way, given that situation, given all the things that have happened to you? And how did you show them love after they treated you that way? How did you show up for them when they abandoned you? How did you apologize when they really should be apologizing to you. And the reason that all this is so important is because Jesus consistently viewed being treated unfairly and unkindly as an opportunity. He saw these things as opportunities, that our reactions are opportunities to show others how God will react to them. And Jesus sort of lived this out in his life. Uh, and then last week, we looked at the priority of our integrity. Our, our integrity. Uh, we talked about how a lack of personal integrity, it sort of adds stress to the people around us. It doesn't just add stress to us when we lack integrity or we sacrifice our integrity, but it also impacts other people, just like a structure. If one part of it fails and lacks structural integrity, the rest of the pieces have to sort of pick up the, the weight and pick up the stress of the building. And, and the reality is that it transfers stress. It shares the stress with the other parts of the building. And we define integrity as doing what you should do even when... It costs you. Doing the right, the honorable, the noble thing, um, not just because we want to or we think it's going to benefit us, but even when it's going to cost us something, even when it's going to cost us something um, in our lives, and it's going to have a consequence along with it, maybe. Um, and we, we sort of typically know what we should do. We talked about how God sort of puts that in our hearts. Um, and, and after um, looking at it, really a powerful story from Daniel, we looked at the courageous story how Daniel was able to do the right thing even when it cost him. And it actually provided him an opportunity to, to show what God is like and for God to work in his life. 
Um, so those are the first two priorities that we're going to talk about, uh, integrity and our reactions and how those things look at it. But today we're going to look at sort of a foundational basis for those two priorities and something that really impacts both of those things in a very important way. And maybe it's even a higher priority what we're going to talk about today. And it's even more central maybe to the, the message of Jesus and how we follow him. The point where we're going to go to today is that our reactions and our integrity reflect our confidence or our lack of confidence in God. That our reactions and our integrity, they both reflect our confidence in God or our lack of confidence in God. That you can tell a lot about a person, we've sort of said this, you can tell a lot about a person um, based on how they react to disappointment, uh, to being mistreated, to, to unmet expectations, to criticism, betrayal, um, you know, all kinds of bad things happening to them. You can tell a lot about a person when you see them really react, you see sort of what's really inside of them when those things happen. You can tell a lot about a person when you're sort of watching someone, when they don't think anybody's watching them, right? <laughs> you don't think anybody's seeing what they're doing, but you see what they're doing. You can tell a lot about what their actual character and their integrity is like. Um, our reactions and our integrity say something to the people around us, whether we realize it or not. How we react and the decisions that we make, whether they're right or wrong, that tells other people something about us. And our reactions and our integrity also tell other people about how much confidence we have in God or how little confidence we have in God. And unfortunately, this is one of the primary reasons I think people who have Christians in their life, why they don't follow Jesus, because they see us. And they see how we react in situations and say, yeah, you're just like me. That, that's exactly how I would react in that situation. There's nothing different between us, so why would I want to go do something on a Sunday? Why would I want to give my time? Why would I want to give my money? Why would I want to do all these things of following Jesus when your life and your reactions are the same as my reactions? And, and I don't have Jesus in my life, right? I see you make decisions, and, and you made the decision based on what was best for you, and you weren't willing to sacrifice, or you weren't willing to pay the cost so if you're not willing to make the right decision when it's going to cost you, why should I follow Jesus either? And unfortunately, this thing about our integrity and our actions, it really shows people about how much confidence we really have in God and how much we're really relying on Him. And our reactions and our integrity also reflect who we believe controls outcomes. And this is something that we're going to kind of dive a little bit deeper in today, that our reactions and our integrity reflect who we believe actually controls outcomes. Uh, and maybe, maybe you can relate to this, but um, I sort of overreact when I feel things are slipping out of control. And specifically, if you want to add another pronoun in there, I really sort of overreact and don't react well when I feel like things are slipping out of my control, right? When I think things are not in my control anymore, that's when I don't react very well. So what are your reactions saying about your confidence in God? What do your reactions tell other people about your confidence or lack of confidence in God? That if someone looked at your reactions in person, you know, when you're actually with people, but I'm going to honestly pause, say, what about your reactions online as well, right? Think about the comment sections, the things that you do online, whatever that might be. What would your reactions say about your confidence that God has got you, that God is there for you, that God is present in your life? How would you react or how would I react to disappointment, to heartbreak, to, to being mistreated or being treated unfairly, if we were actually convinced that God is with us and God was there for us. Um, also, I don't know about you, but I, I noticed that I sort of are more willing to sacrifice my integrity um, when, I, when I don't remember or don't realize that God actually is in control. In the moments where I sort of forget that God actually is in control, I am a lot more tempted to sacrifice integrity in my life. So what does your integrity say about your confidence 
in God. When, when you look at the decisions that you've made over the past few years, or the past few months, or the past few weeks, what does your integrity say about your confidence in God? As a parent, as a teenager, as an employer, as an employee, as a citizen, just a normal citizen in the world, what do your decisions that when no one's looking, what do they say about your confidence in God? What are your decisions when it's going to cost you something? What do those decisions say about your confidence in God? That I'm not sure about your experience, but my experience is that every time I try to control outcomes, I usually, at the very least, make things more complicated, right? <laughs> at the very least, when I try to control outcomes, I make things more complicated. Usually, I probably make them worse and, and somehow make them bad. And then I end up having to apologize, even if I think I'm actually right and I had the right point, but maybe I didn't handle it the right way, I didn't react the right way, or, or maybe I just didn't make the right decision that I should have made. Uh, I like this quote from Dr. Charles Stanley. It says, my responsibility is to obey God and leave the outcome to him. And that sort of seems like a great lofty goal to be able to do, but when you sort of get into your normal everyday situations and the big decisions that you have to make or the daily decisions you have to make on a regular basis, that can seem a little bit too lofty and too distant. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage, a couple passages of scripture of Jesus' followers, of how they actually sort of live this out and honestly how they didn't live this out. Because if you haven't noticed, actually the followers of Jesus didn't really implement Jesus' Sermon on the Mount until after the resurrection. There's really no evidence that they were willing to love their enemies before Jesus died on the cross. There, there's like no evidence that anybody actually took him seriously on that. There's no evidence that he actually, that the Jesus followers actually would go the extra mile. We talked about that, that you would go the extra mile with someone. There's like no evidence that Jesus followers would actually do what Jesus taught about until after the resurrection. And, and one of these instances that we're gonna look at is in Luke chapter nine. If you wanna follow along in the Bible app, you can jump in there with us. Uh, we'd love for you to follow along there. We'll have the notes and verses on the screen as well. But basically at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is sort of starting to head on his way to Jerusalem for this important thing, you know, being crucified, this important climax of his life, to be crucified and then eventually to rise from the dead. He's heading towards Jerusalem and on the way, He's going to go through the direct route is through Samaria. And so we read this in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And this is just sort of Luke's kind of kind way of saying that Jesus is heading to the cross, that Jesus is getting ready to go and be crucified. And he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And again, the direct route from where Jesus was to Jerusalem would go through Samaria. And if you don't know, obviously in the first century, um, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along for a variety of reasons, but they just did not get along for, for some important things that we'll talk about in just a second. Verse 52, uh, Jesus sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. That basically Jesus sent a group of people ahead to prepare for an even bigger group of people coming because hospitality was a big deal and so you needed to sort of prepare it. And traveling was very dangerous and so he sent this group of people ahead to prepare. Now maybe Jesus also sent this group ahead to sort of prepare the way for a Jewish group of people coming through Samaria and all the tension that sort of was along with that. Either way, Jesus sends this group ahead to prepare. Verse 53, but the people in the Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, sort of to get into the weeds just a little bit, just real quickly about this Jew and Samaritan thing, that basically this was offensive to the Samaritans because the Samaritans saw Mount Gerizim and, and their sort of holy site as the important place that God wanted them to be. The Jews, on the other hand, thought Mount Moriah was the holy site, and that was where Jerusalem and the temple was built. And so the, the Jews sort of saw that as the place that God wanted them to be. And so the Samaritans said, 
Well, if you're acknowledging that Jerusalem is the place to be, then we're sort of offended by that because we think this other mount is where the holy site was supposed to be. And so the Samaritans respond to Jesus because he's going to Jerusalem with just no hospitality. They don't welcome him at all. They don't acknowledge that that's the right thing. Uh, now, before we get into this next verse, verse 54, um, I think it's important to know that the disciples, again, they probably heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount message, not just one time. We have it recorded for us once uh, and parts of it a, a second time. But Jesus probably, wherever he traveled, he probably shared the same message in some capacity wherever he went. And so the disciples have been following Jesus for three years in all these different towns, repeatedly hearing the same message over and over again. And yet, as I said, there's really no evidence that before the resurrection, they did any of the things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see another example of that. Verse 54, when James and John saw the Samaritans treat Jesus this way and not welcome him, now, just remember that this is John, the same John, who sort of introduced the world to this idea that God is love, right? This is, what, this is the same John who would later tell us that God is love. It's also the same John who would also pen the, the famous words when he was an older man, he was looking back at Jesus' life and saying, yeah, there's something I'm going to describe Jesus as, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And this is how John, the same John, reacts earlier, many years earlier, okay? When James and John saw how Jesus was not welcomed, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Like, that's how this John, who wrote, For God so loved the world, no, no, before that, like, I want to burn up these people because they're not welcoming Jesus. They're not, they're not handling things the way that they should. And John reacts with that sort of intent. Him and, both, both him and James react this way. And I just have to sort of... Uh, not relish in it, but be a little bit happy that as a teacher of God's word that not everybody applies it. I don't always apply it. But in this case, Jesus is in the boat where he's the one teaching and they just do not apply what he's been talking about. He's got to be sort of so discouraged in this moment because he's been saying these things about how you should react to other people and how you should love your enemies. And, and yet they just don't get it and they want to call down fire from heaven. He's like, no, I'm not going to call down fire from heaven. No, I don't want you to burn them up. That's not at all the purpose of what I've been trying to do. Verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. And interestingly, this word rebuked that he uses in, in the Hebrew, it, it actually sort of goes to this idea that Jesus would use also when he was rebuking demons. So not necessarily different, very similar in this case, that this is not what Jesus would want. And so he's rebuking them and saying, no, this of course is not what I would want to do. Of course I don't want you to call down fire from heaven. Verse 56, so they went on to another Village, And again, Jesus is probably so discouraged. His disciples who've been hearing this message and, and he's going to get ready to go and die for them. And, and they still just do not get what he's trying to say. They don't have confidence in God. They don't have faith. They're, they're, something else is, is, is leading their life, not faith and their confidence in God. So eventually these disciples, this group of people, you know, sort of make their way down to Jerusalem. They go to a different town first and they make their way to Jerusalem. And, and obviously Jesus is arrested and, and there's soldiers that come to arrest him in the garden at night. Jesus does not resist. He does not run. And yet his disciples, his closest friends, they do resist and they do run away when Jesus is arrested. Uh, the soldiers who, who came to arrest Jesus were basically a small army because they thought and the leaders thought that of course he's going to respond like all of us would respond if somebody comes to arrest us and, and take us away. They know unjustly, but you know, Jesus would also think that as well. So, so why would they send such a, a large army, a, a small army, to just go and arrest one person? Well, again, they knew or they thought they knew that Jesus would react like everybody else would react when they're wrongly imprisoned or wrongly arrested. 
And yet, Jesus was not like those people. He was not even like his own disciples, in a sense, because they reacted differently. And he reacted differently from the way that the crowd would have reacted, the way the soldiers would have reacted, with a different type of integrity, because Jesus has a mindset. He's got a focus about things that's a little bit different than the world that would naturally have. And he's got a different mindset about what's happening and who's actually controlling the outcomes. So after, obviously, the religious leaders arrest Jesus, they, they beat him, they mistreat him, uh, they make all kinds of accusations against him, but then they bring him to Pilate, and, and Pilate's the person they need permission to actually crucify Jesus. And so they, they, uh, they take him to Pilate, they, they bring a bunch of witnesses to sort of make up these stories about him and do all these things, and yet Jesus doesn't react to, get to that. And Pilate eventually brings Jesus in and says, I, I, I need to talk to this guy. They're wanting to do bad things to you, and so I want to bring you in and talk to you. But before he actually does that, he actually says, I'm going to you know, send Jesus off to go get flogged and, and beaten and whipped, and hopefully that'll sort of appease the crowd, and the crowd won't want to do anything else. But that doesn't happen. The crowd wants to do even more. And so eventually Pilate says, yeah, I need to meet with this guy, Jesus, and he brings him in to question him. And in this exchange, we see at least part of the reason that Jesus was able to react the way he did when terrible things were being said about him, when terrible things were happening to him, when people were hurting him and mistreating him. There's a way that he has a mindset that helps us, I think, will help us, can help us to react as well. And we get a little bit of a glimpse into his perspective. Verse, uh, John chapter 19, beginning in verse 10, he says, uh, Pilate says, Why don't you talk to me? Because Jesus basically wouldn't answer Pilate's questions. Pilate was wanting to ask some questions and get some answers from Jesus, maybe that he could help him or maybe that he could sort of seal his fate more. Either way, he just would not answer Pilate's questions. So Pilate demanded, why won't you talk to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Don't you realize who I am, Jesus, basically? Like, don't you realize that I have the power? Like, I'm the appointed person of Ro the Roman Empire. The Jews have to come to me to get permission because we oversee the Roman, uh, we are part of the Roman Empire, and we oversee Jerusalem. They can't kill anybody without my permission, and my authority gives them that permission. Don't you realize that I have the permission, I have the ability, the authority to either set you free or to crucify you? And basically, in this moment, I think there's a little bit of Pilate's voice in me, and I imagine there's a little bit of Pilate's voice in you. That there are times that we think we have more power and control over outcomes than we actually do. And I think for me, at least, those moments of my reactions when I react poorly, a lot of times those are the moments where I think I have more control or I want to have more control of the situation. And I don't want that person to get away with whatever they're gonna get away with. And so I react to try to get them back. Or maybe it's the, the integrity thing that I, that I think if I don't grab this thing, I, I, I won't be able to get it. I won't be able to have this thing. I won't be able to acquire that amount of money. I won't be able to make the deal. I won't be able to get the date. I won't be able to whatever the thing is. That I think that I have more control, that I can bring it to myself and make it happen. But just like we probably should ask Pilate, we probably should also ask ourselves, now that most of us know the story, we know sort of this situation, did Pilate really have the, the control over the outcomes? Did he really have control over this situation? Did he have control over Jesus at all? D do you have the power or the control over the outcomes and situations in your life? We have a control over our reactions and our responses, but do you actually have control over the situation, the circumstances, the outcomes of your decisions? Because if Jesus actually believed that Pilate controlled the outcome, 
I think Jesus would have reacted very differently. He would have reacted like anybody else about to be crucified and in front of the judge, in front of the leader that can determine your fate. They would have begged for mercy, right? Jesus doesn't see that Pilate is the one who controls the outcome, and so he doesn't beg for mercy. So who do you think controls outcomes? Who do you think controls the outcomes, not just in Jesus' life, but in your own life, not just in my life, but who do, who do we think controls the outcomes? Do you think it's your boss? you think it's your mother or your father? you think it's luck? Uh, maybe you think it's the government just controls outcomes of everything. Who do you think controls outcomes? Because in those moments where these things are happening and we're sort of wondering, we're questioning our integrity, we're thinking about reacting a way that we shouldn't react, in those moments we discover what and who is most important to us. This is when we discover if we really have confidence in God or if we're just sort of trying to play religion or just sort of trying to see God as a good luck charm, which I think if we were honest, a lot of times we pray hoping that if we pray, we'll get the thing that we want. And that's sort of a, a very close thing to sort of just viewing God as a good luck charm. If I pray, then I'll get the thing that I want. Or maybe we're just sort of thinking that we discover that if, if doing the right thing equals uh, things working out, and then conversely, if things don't work out, then I'll just do the wrong thing, because why not, if that's just the way that we view things? Because at the end of the day, if we just see our integrity, and, and back to our original point, if we just see our faith as something that's disposable, that if it's not working out for me, I'll just get rid of it, Jesus didn't see things that way. He didn't see faith, and he didn't see his decisions that way. And I think he invites us to see it differently as well. Verse, 20, or verse 11 again. Then Jesus said to Pilate, and, and I think he says to us a lot of times, you would have no power over me. You would have no power over your circumstances, over the outcomes of this, the situations around you. You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. That Jesus' primary concern was not the outcome of the decision in Pilate's hand. That was not his primary concern. He knew there was something much bigger at play than just this one decision. That if Jesus' primary concern was the outcome of this decision, then I think it's reasonable to assume that Jesus would have responded differently given that his life is on the line. But Jesus' primary concern was doing what he knew he should do. Doing what he knew his father wanted him to do in this situation. That Jesus was trusting God with the outcome of whatever happened in this, this situation, or whatever decision Pilate was going to make, he was trusting God with the outcome. Because he knew, ultimately, Pilate did not control the outcomes, as much as Pilate might have thought he did, uh, that his heavenly father actually controlled the outcome. Now, when Pilate heard this, I think when Pilate first heard Jesus respond this way, I think initially probably Pilate was thinking like, well, like, who does he think he is? Jesus is talking to me like, I, I, you know, you can't question my identity. I, I, I'm this Roman governor. Why are you questioning me? Like, yeah, I'm only just one of many, and the Roman emperor sort of appoints everybody, and so my power sort of does come from above. And maybe throughout thinking of this, Pilate sort of realizes that, yeah, his power was pretty limited in a sense. It only came from the Roman emperor, and then eventually, you know, we would believe that it ultimately came from God. And in those moments, yet still this fearless, courageous rabbi sees something bigger than all of those things happening. He sees something beyond that. And eventually, Pilate, I think, somehow also realizes that as well because of what he does next. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. And the key word is tried. He tried to set Jesus free, but even though Pilate sort of wanted to control the outcome of, of making Jesus free, 
he quickly realized he couldn't do that because the crowd was just so riled up and wanted to crucify Jesus so much. Pilate couldn't actually. He, didn't, he realized he didn't have the power to do what he actually wanted to do in this situation. And as you know, Jesus goes on to be crucified and, and sort of if to punctuate his teachings about how to treat your enemies and how to react and, and how to do the right thing in the face of cost, he actually forgives his crucifiers <laughs> on the cross while he's being crucified. It's sort of just another punctuation moment in, in his teaching. And then on the other side of the crucifixion, we see that again, the, the followers of Jesus, this crucifixion and resurrection, it just sort of set a light on in their heads that they eventually sort of got Jesus' teaching. The three years of following him didn't do it, but the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus did. And so one of those followers was a guy named Peter, who before the crucifixion and resurrection, he had all kinds of moments where he just did not get what Jesus was trying to talk about. And he consistently showed that his confidence was not really in God. It was in his cell and himself, and he thought he controlled outcomes. And, and he really reacted so poorly, right? Even right up to the crucifixion, he acted so poorly that he denied following Jesus and he just ran away from the situation. Uh, he denied he even knew Jesus. And this same Peter, eventually again, after the crucifixion and resurrection, he says this as an eyewitness and someone who saw Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Now, the last line of another translation is what I want to focus on. I want to look at the NIV. The uh, different translation says this. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And it's just like what Jesus taught them to do, right? For three years, Jesus was teaching them to do these things. And Jesus actually lived that out when he was being crucified. And that is not how the world works, right? The world does not work this way normally. And Jesus taught them something different. And then Peter writes this, again, after seeing Jesus die and handle things this way. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And this is the key phrase. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And this is the perspective, I think, that can empower us to react in ways that are not natural for us, right? They can help us react in the ways that Jesus wants us to react when we're wronged or someone treats us unjustly. This perspective can help us to have integrity and to choose to do the thing that we know we should do in the face of something that's going to cost us because we entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, that Peter realized that Jesus lived basically his whole life assuming that only his heavenly father controlled the outcomes, that, that it wasn't other people, it wasn't himself even to some extent, it was God who controlled the outcomes. And in the moments where I actually pause and remember this, I tend to react better. <laughs> I tend to have more integrity. And maybe you're the same way, that when we actually pause and remember this, that the person that we're, that we're frustrated with, that we want to react poorly to, that we remember that they don't control the outcomes of our situations. When we're in those moments, in the heat of the moment, where we, we want to be willing to sacrifice our integrity because we want that thing so much, we want that outcome. In those moments where we actually remember that God is the one who controls outcomes, we're much more willing to, to hold to our integrity and to make the decision that we know we should do. And in those moments, it sort of comes down to who do we think has control over the outcomes? Who do we think actually controls the outcomes of my life? Do I think that those people who are doing that terrible thing and mistreating me actually control my life and control the outcomes? Uh, do I have control over this situation enough that if I grab this thing and do this thing that I know I shouldn't do, that I can control the outcomes? Or 
Does God have control over outcomes? Does God have control over those situations that I'm frustrated with? That when we react poorly and we sacrifice our integrity, we show our lack of confidence in God. And I'm just as guilty of it as you might be. So in these seasons where we have these new opportunities or we're going back to old opportunities or we're going back to old friends or we're meeting new friends, meeting new people, whatever the situation is that you're in right now, your integrity and your reactions are going to show people something about your confidence in God. And whether you're willing to sacrifice and give of yourself or whether you're willing to react differently even though it's in spite of your pain, in spite of the things that you're going through. That interestingly, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples could see that God could actually control outcomes. The resurrection was sort of proof to them that God controls outcomes. God is in a big way control of outcomes. And they sort of responded differently. That they would go out and respond and live their lives in a completely different way than before the resurrection of Jesus. That is, that, that they would realize that the Jesus Sermon on the Mount thing, the thing that he talked about, that, that his invitation to love and serve enemies... I can go and do that because Jesus actually loved and served his enemies and God controlled the outcomes. That when Jesus talked about his invitation to, to not worry about who controls the things in your life and the money and all the things that we worry about, we don't need to worry about that because ultimately God controls the outcomes. We can have confidence in him. It's not our circumstances that control outcomes. It's God who controls the outcomes. That Jesus' invitation to fear not in the face of things that are actually fearful and, and should cause fear in our lives we can actually have confidence in God that He controls the outcomes, no matter what the fearful thing in our life is. That when we step back into that reality that, that God actually controls outcomes and we can entrust ourselves to Him, we make much better decisions and we react much better. And I think this is what following Jesus actually looks like, to entrust that God is in control of our outcomes. That we would recognize, that we would be recognized rather, by our confidence that God actually controls things. That not that person, not that employer, not that boss, not that whoever, that God actually controls outcomes. And that it would be something that people would recognize in us. And it sort of goes back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus would say, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That basically people would connect the dots between why you reacted that way, why you made that tough decision in the face of costing you a significant amount of whatever, they would connect those dots to God. That it would all connect back to God. That they would say, that's why he reacts that way. That's why they make decisions that way. Because it's about God and the confidence they have in him that God controls outcomes. So in the seasons of change that some of us are experiencing, as school is starting for many of us, as um, we go back to the office, maybe even as you stay right where you are, our reactions and our integrity reflect our confidence or our lack of confidence in God.